0: In the Gospel of Luke, we are, because you have to put up with my weird personality, I am, I am rebellious in a lot of ways, and that rebellion comes out, I'm not an anti-traditionalist. Um, But there's a lot of traditions that I just don't understand, that I don't care about, that I don't press into. As we talk about Christmas, there's a lot of traditions, like we all just say, who cares, right? There's a lot of things that go on in our culture in relation to what we think Christmas is all about. um, That the tradition may be 50 years old, it may be 100 years old, it may be 150 years old in our culture. But a lot of the things that we feel that are important in our lives um, they have nothing to do with a nativity story in the word of god and different cultures press into different traditions at different times but now as i'm a middle-aged man i'm beginning to appreciate traditions more and more because traditions give me reminders they remind me of where i've come from who i am today what i'm aimed at in the future so as we sit in the christmas story in the nativity this morning We're going to sit in a little bit of the tradition to begin with in the Gospels, but then we're going to jump kind of, not kind of, but into a story in the Old Testament that doesn't really feel like it fits their tradition, but it absolutely does. It helps us understand what the nativity story is all about. So I had you turn here to the Gospel of Luke because this is the meatiest narrative that we have in regards to the nativity story. When you sit in the Gospel of Mark, 0 Doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus. Just jumps right into John the Baptist's life and the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, John gives us this cosmic description that in the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that was created was created by Jesus. And then John 1.14 says, Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And he tabernacled in our midst, and we beheld his glory full of grace and full of truth. So that's the imagery, that's the the one line of nativity story that we get in the Gospel of John, that the word of God, the Almighty God, stepped into the flesh. We're in the Gospel of Matthew right now on Sunday mornings, and we just went through, it's it's been a few months now, but we went through that uh, nativity story um, in the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, which presses into Joseph's side of the story. So there you have Joseph's interaction with an angel. And Joseph is encouraged, not encouraged, he's told that the child that is in Mary's womb, it's of the power of God. This is not because she has been promiscuous in any way. There has been a miracle that has been performed. And Joseph, here's what's going on. You are going to marry Mary, and you are going to name this child Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. So at the very beginning there, and that's in the nativity story and the instructions that are given to Joseph, the whole idea of salvation comes up, which we're going to sit in heavily this morning, because the gift of Jesus to us is for you and for me to be saved, to have eternal life. So Matthew focuses on Joseph's side of that nativity. And as, a, as an application point, Joseph's a man's man. You said in our culture, many men today, if they were to find the woman that they're engaged to, to be pregnant, There would be the recommendation to press into abortion. There would be the recommendation to abandon this woman. We live in a culture that has many fatherless homes where women are carrying the brunt of both of those relationships. And again, Joseph stood up to the plate and he submitted to God. And all the hardship that that truly was in his life. I guarantee that they had many blessed times. But I guarantee that their marriage was not easy, especially in the early days. So, as we press into the nativity story in the Gospel of Luke, we're not gonna sit in this in heavy detail. Um, But we're going to get a lot in our minds, and the the nuggets that I'm going to focus on, they're going to feed back into another family that we're going to look at, which is Abraham and Sarah in just a minute. So in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is a fabulous storyteller. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the Book of Acts. But in these beginning couple of chapters, he's bouncing back and forth in this dramatic scene between two miraculous stories. Uh, conceptions and births. And the first miraculous one, he's focused on John the Baptist. John the Baptist's parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're old. They're beyond childbearing years, and there's this whole scene in regards to an angel declaring to them that Elizabeth is going to get pregnant, that she is going to have a child, and this child is going to announce the coming of the Messiah. So that's one of the miraculous scenes that we're pressing into in the, in, the, uh, in the nativity story. And the other one is the opposite side of this, where you have this young woman and this young man. You have Mary and Joseph. Today, if you threw this couple into our culture today, you would call Mary a child bride. So this is, these are, these are cultural ideas that are very foreign to us, but she's 14, 15, 16 years old in her culture, engaged to be married to Joseph. There's some traditions that say Joseph had a prior wife and had a bunch of kids by this wife, and the wife has died, and that's where all these siblings of Jesus come from, and that's not true. That's just, again, a weird story from history. He is older than her, but they've been... A family arrangement between their families, they are committed together in marriage, is the story. So without pressing into Joseph's side of it, we're looking at Mary's side of it. It says, in the sixth month, and this is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 26 of Luke. Uh, Said to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin... Betrothed to a man who was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice. And as, as we go through this, we'll, we'll skip in a lot of this, but the whole the emphasis of the language of the nativity stories of these first couple of chapters, it's all about rejoicing, praising, uh, finding that praise in God. He says to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And this is one of those scenes, like you don't know how, uh, again, this, this is where my, um, weird personality starts coming into this. Because again, when you think of an angel, what do you think about? Think about wings, right? There's some seraphim in the Bible that we're told to have wings, but Gabriel, these, these normal angels, these messengers of God, we're not told that they ever have angels. Usually we press into art and it's these fat little chubby babies with wings. That's not the picture that you're supposed to have. But is he all stoic and just in his robes and in his white? Or is he just like, rejoice? Is he kind of a spaz? We don't know where Gabriel is in this moment. But whatever this greeting was to Mary, I mean, she's set back. And she's a meditator. She's a woman who takes pieces and holds on to those pieces and circumstances and words in her life. And holds on to them and meditates and think. And we watch this multiple times in her story. It says, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. And over and of his kingdom, there will be no end. We're pressing into this. Uh, we did last week, and we'll continue to move forward in that imagery. So I'm not going to pause on it now. But what's being expressed to her is all of these promises of waiting for the Messiah, the promised one. God has sent an angelic messenger to Mary and says, you're the woman that is going to bear this child. And she's sitting in all of this information and she responds, how can this be since I do not know a man? I've never been intimate with a man. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now uh, the sixth month for her, who was called barren, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And hold on to that. If you mark in your Bible, if just, a, just to have a banner over your life and in your soul, in your life circumstances, you're praying to God. Just know nothing is impossible with him. If it's his will, it's going to be performed. Verse 38 says, Mary said, behold, here I am, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Angel departed from her, jumped down to verse 46. This is known as the Magnificent. Mary expressing these words to, as she's interacting with Elizabeth, she says, "'My soul magnifies the Lord, "'and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. "'For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, "'for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. We call Mary favored. She is the one that has been chosen by God. God did not choose wrong, but he chose this woman to bring this only chosen son, God in the flesh, to become a human as a gift to all of us. She is definitely blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. In remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And we're going to press into Abraham's story in just a minute. But sit in these words. A teenage girl. Pretty powerful theology. Does she know her God? Does she know the word of God? She knows the stories. This is the culture that she's been brought up in. She has been called by God into an extremely difficult position. She's taken this information from the angel that she is going to be overshadowed and that she is going to have a child in her wombs as a miracle that nobody is going to understand because the community is going to say, yeah, right, because they're not going to believe the testimony. So she's left her community. She is visiting her distant cousin Elizabeth as Jesus is growing in her womb. She remains there with Elizabeth during the scene until Elizabeth bears John, and then she's sent home after that. So she's been there for it's, her, it's the sixth month when it's announced, so she's traveled. She's at least three months pregnant at that birth. So by the time she travels home, she's starting to show there's some body changes. And now she's going to be the talk of the town. Her family relationships are going to be strained. The community relationships are going to be strained. She's going to be ostracized in so many different ways. Yet out of her mouth, what is pouring forth? Truth. Trust. Faith. Because she knows the story of her forefathers, which we're going to sit in that story, which, again, the stories are preserved for us so that we know and understand who our God is today. Jump down to chapter 2. So the rest of chapter 1 is pressing into John the Baptist's story. Now in chapter 2, it returns back to Jesus' story. So God is not just using a, a singular woman and the man that she is engaged to and their surrounding families and community. He's using a political guy that's all the way in Rome, Caesar Augustus, to do this, uh, this, to be registered. They're being registered in a census uh, for taxes. It says this uh, census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone in his own city. Joseph and Mary live up in Nazareth. So it says they, Joseph uh, went up from Galilee. They're traveling out of the city of Nazareth, down south into Judea, into the city of David, which is Bethlehem. So this is a long trek with his very nine-month pregnant wife. On a donkey, walking, this is huge risk. All of this stuff is going on as part of this journey, the stresses of it. It says, because he was of the house and lineage of David, so they're going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So in all of that journey, they find themselves in a crowded community, no room for her. And she gives birth in a barn. And this child, the one who is given to us as a gift of grace, is wrapped in some some cotton, some cloth, and laid in a feeding trough. Verse 8, there were in the same country some shepherds. You know, these are the... These are the outcasts of society. There's there's all kinds of stereotypes associated with this group of people. They're out there living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And then, again, there's this, behold, an angel of the Lord stood before him. So it's one of, you have to sit in the drama of this. Was there just a, you know, there wasn't a guy, and all of a sudden there is a guy, and he's right before him. Did he kind of, like, fade in? Don't know the drama of the moment, but you can imagine So here's this angel of the Lord. They're all going to be freaked out. It says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, not just around the angel, but around this group of men and this angel that's now in their presence. They are freaking out. They're greatly afraid, it says. Verse 10, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. told you all of this is about rejoicing. The celebration of this gift that's been given, which will be to all people, not just to the Jews, but to all. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly, again, not just this angel surrounding in this light, it's nighttime, but there's this light and glory of God that's shining around him and then boom, there's suddenly with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And this is just isn't traditional junk in mythology. Picture the reality of this event. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. This declaration of God's glory and the declaration to men and to women. Here is the provision of peace with your creator in this child that has been born. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherd said, we're not going to read through this because we're not going to have time. But they go find Jesus. Mary, it says, she's pondering all of these events. She's keeping them in her heart. The shepherds return, glorifying and praising God. They're telling everybody what they've seen. What I want us to jump down to is verse 25 says, Behold, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation, for the comfort of Israel. So here's this old guy living in Jerusalem. It's just. He's, he has righteousness by faith in God. He's devoted to God. He's not playing games. But there's something unique about his relationship with the Lord, about what he knows that he's heard from God specifically to him, these promises that he's holding on to. This isn't a guy that we know that has pinned these these prophecies and other, other words and things that we have held on to us. This is this guy in his individual relationship with God and what he knows that God has communicated to him, which is it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. So this is a scene where Joseph and Mary have showed up with Jesus. They're coming to worship. They're coming in obedience to what the law of God has commanded them to do. And this this day of purification, this ritual. So here they are showing up together and. Simeon is coming at the same time, and when he sees this couple, and when he sees this child, this weird old guy comes and takes Jesus up in his arms, and he's blessing and he's praising God. and he says, "Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles." Again, this is for all peoples, Jews, Gentiles. He is the very light of life and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother, Mary, that they're marveling at the things that are going on, at the things that Simeon is speaking about their son, And they're retaining all of this. It says, Simeon, bless them. He's praying for them, blessing them. He says to Mary, his mother, he says, behold, this child right here, your child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he's also a sign which will be spoken against. Then he gives this statement to Mary. He says, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And it says that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So in this moment, in this interaction between Mary and Simeon, here's this. Again, God's revealing and speaking to Simeon and he speaks these words to Mary and the words that we're gonna press into, and this is, this is my springboard, this is what launched me back into the Old Testament is this whole idea. This child, your relationship with this child, there's gonna be a sword that's going to pierce your soul as a mom. Again, as, we, as you sit with Mary in this narrative and we really don't see her that much in the future, We see her interact with Jesus a little bit in a few different scenes, but then we see her at the foot of the cross as Jesus is nailed to the cross. And we know that that's the whole idea, that this mom, her soul, is being pierced. As she is watching not just her son, but she's watching her Savior die for her sins, the sins of her nation, and the sins of all humanity. And in the midst of that knowledge, she knows, she has an idea, she has an understanding of what the end result is going to be, and it's going to be good. But in this scene, in this moment, like she's had to carry this language for 30 years. Have you ever carried anything for 30, a weight, a burden? So... Hold on to that idea, and we're going to use it to carry through this narrative in Genesis. Turn back to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to go through 10 chapters. We're going to go very fast to get into Genesis 22, which we'll slow down and read. But to understand what's going on in Genesis 22, to understand what's going on in the nativity story, we need a bunch of other pieces of the story to help us understand the weight that's going on. As we're introduced at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, we're introduced to a couple named Abram and Sarai. They get their names changed to Abraham and Sarah, so that's what I'm going to refer to them as as we go through this narrative. But if you read, it's going to say Abram and Sarai in these early chapters. And when we're introduced to this couple, the the burden that we are given in the text, the burden that we're given of their life is here's this couple, Abraham and Sarah, and their burden is that she is barren. So there's a, there's this is an imagery. This is an application. This is their this is their burden of barrenness that both of them, as husband and wife, are going to carry in their life for over two decades as they're waiting for God to do exactly what He said He was going to do for them. So throw up the map really quick. So Genesis 11 gives us this scene that Abraham is from Ur. Ur is all the way down there in the bottom right towards the Persian Gulf. And we're told in this scene, so we're we're not told when God first communicated to Abraham, but whether he was in Ur, whether it was along this long migration up to Haran, or whether it was in Haran, at some point, the God who created the heavens of the earth is making himself known to Abraham. And here's the narrative. This is already in the past. God has already created the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve have already sinned in the garden. Humanity grew in its sin, and you already have Noah in the flood. You already have the descendants of Noah spread out into all the areas of the world. So all of that is already in history. We're told that Abraham's father, Terah, is an idolater. He believes in an idol. He believes in a false god. He does not believe in Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that's the upbringing that Abraham has been brought up in. So at some point in that journey, whether it's in Ur, whether it's along the way, whether it's in Haran, the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth has made himself known to Abraham, has been speaking to him. And the promise that he speaks to him shows up in chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. That's why I even appreciate, you know, my aunt asking this morning to bring up my family. Because I would have to sit in that wait. Get away from your, your family, from your parents, from your siblings, from your community. Leave. Go be isolated and alone an immigrant, right? Get from your house, and it's not only get out from, but to a place. So in relationship with the Lord, he's always calling us out of something, out of our definitions, out of our identification, out of our wants, out of our will, out of our culture, out of our family. He's always calling us out of, and he's always calling us to himself. And to his will and his promises for our life. He says, to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. You are going to be blessed, Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. You shall be a blessing. Not only are you blessed, but you're going to be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I'm going to favor those who favor you and honor you. And I will also curse those who curse you. I will protect you and watch over you. And this is known, it's the second mention of the gospel in the Bible. The first one is in Genesis 3, but this is the second one. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That line, it's it's a promise about a future son. In you, Abraham, in your body. There is a child that is going to be born and in you is going to be a blessing to not just your family that you just left and this new community that you're going to, but to all the peoples is the promise of God. So Abraham's dad finally dies when he's 75 years old. So the next map shows the second part of the migration. We don't know how long they dwelt in Haran. But that's the perceived trek that they took, the road that would have gone from Mesopotamia in the north and the trade route down into Egypt would have followed this path, would have followed there Galilee in the north and coming down to where it says Shechem and Morah. These are places that when Abraham comes into the land that he builds these altars. These altars are built of stone. When he builds these altars, he sacrifices a sacrifice, and it says that he's calling on the name of the Lord. He's calling on the name of God. He's in constant relationship with God in this season, trusting that this being who has made himself known and has given him promises is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. But this burden of his wife's barrenness is something that they are carrying with them and that they are waiting for God to fulfill. So when you jump down into chapter 13, verse 14, Abraham's nephew Lot came with him, a family member. There's this separation between Abraham and Lot. In chapter 13, verse 14, after the scene, it says, the Lord says to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Abraham Again, Abraham in this relationship with God, he is looking to have a child come from his body and for God to fulfill that. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, not just one, but man, think of the dust of the earth. Think of the sand on the seashore. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. A walk, Arise, walk in the land through its length and in its width, for I give it to you. So he's sitting in this promise. You jump down to chapter 15. Again, like I said, we're just gonna skip and grab some nuggets. And what I'm trying to convey is just this this burden that's on his back of of his wife's barrenness that he's paying attention to day after day, month after month, year after year. In chapter 15, it says, uh, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what are you going to give me seeing how I go childless? And what I want you to see and what I want you to understand, like Abraham's sitting in doubt. If any of you have been on that journey, you may be, you still may be an err in your relationship with God where this being, he's, you've, you've heard the name of God, you've heard that you're created before, but you've never stepped into that next step of relationship on a journey of crossing over. I, I believe in this God, and I need to go down this path to grow and learn and understand who this creator is, who's created me, why do I exist? You may be sitting in Haran in your journey right now, where you know who God is. He's made himself known to you, you believe in him, you've taken steps in that journey, but you're still sitting in disobedience in the the sense of God's told you something in the past for you to get out of that and get into what he wants you to get into, but you haven't made those steps of faith yet. You may be further down the journey where you've made those steps of faith. You've set up those altars. There's these pivotal events that have happened in your life. But that promise that God gave you all the way back in the beginning, God hasn't come through on his promise yet. And what does that cause you to do as the days on the calendar start ticking by? Often when we get in our flesh, it starts to breed doubt. It starts to breed discouragement. It starts to breed, all right, if God's not going to do it, then I'm going to do it my way. So as Abraham is sitting in this moment, God's, again, he's making himself known to you. I am your protector. I'm your shield. Abraham is dwelling in the midst of a horrific culture that we're going to get into in a minute. And as he's sitting in this culture, as he's just gone to war, as he's made himself an enemy of his neighbor's, God is making himself known again to Abraham. I'm your reward. I'm your shield. And Abraham's sitting in this moment. I believe you, but you've already told me things in the past that haven't come to fulfillment yet. Where's my, where's my child from my body? And God confirms the promise to him. He says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This is in verse 4. This one, he's talking about a servant in his household, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. You brought him outside and said, look to the heavens. So it's nighttime. Count the stars, if, you're a, if you were able to number them. And he said to, that, said to him, so shall your descendants be. And this is this incredible statement of faith in the Old Testament concerning Abraham. It's something that we need to own in our own relationship with God. It says that Abraham believed in the Lord. He's going through a moment of struggle. He has God's words. He has promises. He's crying out to God. God has answered him in a way where those promises are reconfirmed to him. The doubt that he has has now been brought to this position of faith. And we're told that his simple faith of God, I believe you, that simple statement in his life was accounted to him, was a gift of God's grace and righteousness to Abraham's account, is just this simple act of faith powerful statement in the Old Testament. This is before the law. This is before circumcision. His example of just simply believing that God is who he says it is, and God will do what he says that he's going to do. The simple act of believing that is this entrance to his grace, to his righteousness, to salvation that all of us look back to as an example. And after that incredible scene, this boulder of being barren, we see Sarah express. It says in chapter 16, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So Abraham's had his promises. He's had God said, in your body is the seed in these descendants. But we haven't been given the definition that it's from Sarah. So what they do as husband and wife is they're sitting in this burden, waiting and impatient. They have the bright idea of, hey, why don't you marry my slave, my servant, Hagar, my property, Sarah says, and have a child by her for me. So Hagar becomes a concubine, a lower status wife of Abraham in this culture. And between Abraham and Hagar, she births Ishmael. And this child in the New Testament, it gives us he he becomes an image of the flesh. If you wanna live life your own way, there's gonna be consequences that are associated with it. Abraham loves his son, Ishmael. When this child is born, Abraham looks at Ishmael this is my seed. This is the promise of God fulfilled. And he sits in that narrative, a false narrative, in his own mind, in his own soul, in his relationship with God for 13 years. You jump into chapter 17, God shows up again. This is where Abraham and Sarah are renamed. But in chapter 17, verse 15, God says to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. And Abraham falls on his face, and he's laughing. And this is where we get Isaac's name from, laughter. And he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man, listen to this, who's 100 years old? I haven't even mentioned Abraham's age yet. When they left Haran, he was 75 years old. Sarah was 65 years old. There's a 10-year 10 age, 10 age difference between the two of them. Abraham's been in the land for 25 years. They've sat with this burden." For 25 years. Of that 25 years, the last 13 in his life, he's believed a false truth in regards to this child of promise that he thought was Ishmael. And now God's confronting that falsehood, saying, Your old wife is going to be born from your old man body. An impossible miracle needs to transpire. And this is how this narrative links to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and also how the miracle links to Joseph and Mary. And Abraham falls down laughing, and his cry to God is that, oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. He loves his son, and God provides for Ishmael. But Ishmael is a product of the flesh, not the fulfillment of the promise of God. God communicates that he's going to provide for Ishmael, and he does so, but he's going to provide a promised son through his wife Sarah. You jump into chapter 18. Sarah hears this same information as the Lord shows up with a couple of angels having a meal with Abraham and this scene. She laughs, she's smirking. The Lord confronts her on it. She says, "I'm I'm not laughing at this, verse 13. Why did you laugh, Sarah? Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And that whole idea, will anything be impossible for the Lord in the gospel of Luke? It's pointing all the way back to chapter 18, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Great question to sit in in your own relationship with him. And faith is going to take us to an emphatic no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can do anything according to his will. Again, this promise at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. You have the fun scene of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jump all the way to chapter 21. Lord visited Sarah. As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Powerful verse in the Bible. As God said, as he has spoken, so shall it be. It says, for Sarah conceived in her old, broken, dried up, shriveled womb, Sarah conceived And bore Abraham, a shriveled, dried-up old man, a son in his old age, because it's a miracle, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And then you go through this scene as Isaac begins to age, there is the sibling rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah gets in her flesh and wants Hagar and Ishmael to be cast out, which is a ripping out of Abraham's heart. But God tells Abraham not to fear and not to be discouraged, that he will provide for his son. Abraham sends away his son Isaac and the concubine Hagar, and they depart out of his life. And what remains is his wife, Sarah, and the promised son, Isaac. Messed up household. Few decades of life under their belt in walking with the true and living God. They've had a burden on their back for multiple decades. That burden has been lifted and removed in the celebration of God performing a miracle, just as he said in their life. And all that does is shores up faith and trust and rejoicing in God. So here the three of them are in their household, in their community. And then Genesis 22 happens. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. How do you like that test? I'm not going to tell you to hold up AJ, but back there in the strollers, a newborn babe, AJ back there. For us who are parents, sit in the almighty God's language. Abraham, get up again. Take your son, the promised son, your only son, doesn't recognize the illegitimate Ishmael in this scene because there is a singular son of promise. I want you to take that son, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah. Next scene. So the land of Moriah is where modern-day Jerusalem is. For those of you who know the scene and the layout of Jerusalem, there's this big platform that's known as the Temple Mount. Today, on that platform, over this rock is called uh, the Dome of the Rock. This is a, uh, it was built in the late 600s, early 700s, so 1,500 year old building. It's been destroyed multiple times by earthquakes over time. But over the, that building, this golden Dome of the Rock, underneath that dome is this rock. This rock is Mount Moriah. This is known as the foundation stone, so for, for Christians, for Jews, and for Muslims, all, all looking to Abraham as a father of faith, looking to this as this stone. It's, again, called foundation stone. So, you know, it's a mythology, we're not sure, but in ideas, this is where God began the creation, was at this place. And the emphasis that's on this place is when the temple was built, that, is con- that rock is considered to be under the place of the Holy of Holies. This is why uh, after that temple was destroyed, Rome built a temple to a pagan god on top of it. That building was destroyed when the Muslims took over this area of the world. They built a religious structure over this. Uh, There's been times in history during the Crusades when the Christians took over this land, you know, roughly 1000 AD that they put a cross on top of this building. When the Muslims took over it again, they put a moon back on the building. Today it's under Muslim control. But this is the place where God is telling Abraham, this is where I want you to go sacrifice your son. And again, it's in this area, in the mountain of Moriah. This is the location. This is the place. Jesus was crucified outside of the city. But whether it's Mount Moriah, where it's Mount Zion, this city of David, this is the location for the promised son, for the promised seed, for the promised Savior to come and be sacrificed. That's why when you get back into this narrative, into this text, what God is telling Abraham to do is absolute insanity. Nowhere in the Bible is human sacrifice ever allowed, ever asked for, ever encouraged. And any human being who ever thinks that they have heard God to go and sacrifice their children, their child outside of this instant, it is a falsehood from the pit of hell. Abraham, as he is living and dwelling in Canaan, as a foreigner, as an immigrant, is dwelling in a culture that is sacrificing their children and their religious worship to their pagan gods. It's horrific. And in this scene, Abraham is hearing. He knows the voice of his God. And he is hearing from the voice of his God, take your son, your only son, in whom you love, first time the word love is mentioned in the bible i want you to take him and go and offer him on an altar on this rock as a burnt offering a burnt offering in the old testament this is this is an animal that you are bringing to the lord whether it's a bull it could be a lamb it can be a bird in this the and how it's prepared you are placing your hand on this animal And this animal is becoming a substitution for you. What in you is unclean? What in you is defiled? What in you is broken? What in you is broken relationship with your creator is being transferred to this animal. And this animal, its throat is being slit and its life is being poured out. It's being sacrificed for you personally. That's this imagery of a burnt offering. Its body is prepared in a way, and it's laid on this this altar in a way that its body is consumed with fire. Part of it's saved for a nice barbecue because you get to consume part of it. And then this burnt offering, it's defined as this sweet-smelling aroma that goes up to where God is. And the idea of a sweet-smelling aroma, it's something that soothes, it's something that appeases, it's something that pleases God. When you sit with the father's testimony in regards to who the son is in the New Testament, this son pleases the father, is soothing, sweet smelling aroma because all of the emphasis on why Jesus came was to be a sacrifice. So the imagery that we are sitting in in Genesis 22, this is 2000 years before Jesus was ever born. The imagery is pointing to him and outside of that imagery, this chapter makes no sense at all because God never asked for a human sacrifice. This is all an image of Christ dying for our sins, being our substitution in appeasing the wrath of God towards us. Now, verse three of chapter 22, do you, what would you do in Abraham's shoes? How many excuses are you gonna look for? I kind of giggle because Abraham never goes and talks to Sarah. He doesn't tell Sarah what he's doing because he's a smart man, because Sarah would knife Abraham before she lets him knife her son, right? She's a mama bear's gonna come out. But this this is a radical example of faith in God. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddles a donkey, takes two of his young men with him and Isaac his son takes some time to go through the effort and sweat of splitting some wood for the burnt offering and he rises and he goes to the place which God had told him says then on the third day, next image oh well here's here's this gross image of child sacrifice we'll get back to that in a minute, next one So here's the journey. Abraham lives in the south down in Beersheba, and God's told him to go to the mountains of Moriah. Three days. So I told you, when Mary is sitting in Simeon's words from God, there is a sword that is going to pierce your soul, and she's sitting in that word for three decades. Abraham's sitting in the the word of God for three days that you are going to pierce your son in obedience to the God who has made himself known to you, that has fulfilled his promises to you, that has been your shield, that has been your exceedingly great reward, that has been the fulfiller of promises, that has given you everything that you have, he is now asking you to give it back. That's the journey for three days that they're on this road. Why three days? The only reason that that day is marked out for us is because Jesus was in the tomb for three days. For three days, the disciples and all that knew about him on, that are processing through those events. Mary herself is waiting for three days for this resurrection event. In the discouragement, in the doubt, In the confusion, in the hope. That's why these three days are mentioned in Genesis 22. It says, next image. So, this is the image that I want you to sit in. This is not, and this is why I said you had to sit with my weirdness. This is not your typical Christmas nativity picture, correct? That is horrific, that is evil. That is sin. Nothing in that is good. The only reason we have this image is because Abraham is being obedient to the command of God. So as we sit in this raised up hand, in the keep, I want you to keep it on this. We're gonna show you, uh, just keep it there. So, Third day, so Abraham lifts up his eyes, sees the place afar off. Verse five. So as they get to the place, Abraham says to the to the to the two young men that are with him, he says, Stay here with the donkey. Make sure nobody steals the donkey, all right? The lad and I, we're gonna go yonder in worship. I want you to notice his words. We will come back to you. This is Abraham's faith as he is processing through the command of God in his life, how long it took him to get to this conclusion, I don't know. But we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that the reason why Abraham is willing to follow through and do this, he knows that if he brings down that blade and he sacrifices his son, that the promises of God are wrapped up in that promised son. That means God has to bring that child back to life if he kills him. Genesis 22 is, for us, it's a 4,000-year-old picture of a 2,000-year-old event. The disciples, Jesus taught his disciples I am going to die. And on the third day, I am going to rise again. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, Isaac, figuratively died in Abraham's soul. His child was a walking dead man for three days. His child is called a lad. Remember, Abraham's an old dude at this point. The child can take on dad, no problem. Why is the child willing to be bound and sacrificed? Because that's what the father is telling him to do. New Testament tells us that Jesus was obedient to the father's will to the point of death. Everything that we're watching in the scene in Genesis 22 is pointing to the event of the cross and the resurrection. So in verse six, it says, Abraham and all of his faith and all of his hope and all of his confidence and all of his doubt, and all of his emotion, all of his pain, all of his tears, in his silence, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he lays it on Isaac, just like the cross was laid on Jesus for Jesus to carry. Laid it on Isaac, his son, Abraham takes in his hand the fire in his hands, these coals. Fire is this imagery of judgment, God's judgment against sin being poured out on Jesus on the cross is the imagery. Takes this fire in his hands and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to his father and said, you know, we can sit in the humor of this, but It's also pretty serious, but Isaac's like, hey, dad. He's probably yelling at him because he can't hear anymore. Says, here I am, my son. Says, look, we got got the fire. We got got the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham says, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God's going to see to it himself, son. This is Abraham's faith. He is not lying to Isaac. He is expressing his faith to his son, who's confused in the moment. So they get to the place which God had told him. Abraham builds the altar, this image of an altar. Again, it's, it's stacked up rocks not to be hewn, not to be made pretty by man, but just stones of the earth that are stacked up. He lays the wood in order on top of it. And here's the scene where he binds Isaac, his son, and lays him on the altar upon the wood. Which again, here Isaac, able to overpower his dad, Yet he willingly submits to his father's will in the moment. Perfect image of Jesus. And then I want you to go to the next image. This one's a little bit more realistic. You can't see it. But if you're going to sacrifice an animal, you don't hold a knife above you and start stabbing away. In slaughtering any animal, regardless of what it is, its throat is slit so that its life blood can drain out. So in this scene, Isaac is bound. Abraham has the knife in his hand in a way where he is ready to slit his son's throat. And the little winged guy to the left of him, it says, but It's not an angel of the Lord in verse 11, but it's the angel of the Lord. More often than not, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the Son himself coming and speaking. And all of this imagery, God is watching, God is testing, and God is giving to us an image. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, says, Abraham, Abraham. It says, here I am. And again, um, and I didn't read verse 10, sorry. It says, Abraham, he's stretching out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So again, it's not he's stretching out his hand like this. He's, he's reached for the knife and he's getting ready to do it. And the angel of the Lord shows up, calls to Abraham to stop him. And he says, here I am. And the angel says to him, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. And I, you can just watch Abraham crumple. Can't you feel and see all of that release in his soul that he doesn't have to follow through in the moment? It's been a test. I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Next week, when we get back into the Lord's Prayer. Asking for us, for the Lord to provide for us, to give to us our daily bread. We are looking to him as Jehovah Jireh. We are looking back to this moment of Abraham giving Yahweh this name, this attribute, this title. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing. I will bless you. That's favor. That's grace. Multiplying. I will multiply your descendants. Not just this one son, but I am going to multiply your your seed, your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Gospel once again. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham. Returns. You don't see Isaac again in the scene in this narrative, which is awesome until his bride is brought to him. You sit in that imagery. We don't see Jesus again. Jesus has been taken up to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Lord. And we don't see Jesus again until his bride comes to him. It's an awesome imagery that you see in Genesis 24. But Back to this worship team, come on up. Very long-winded introduction. That was all introduction for the nativity story this morning. Because it's a lot more than just this traditional theatrics that we can have in a play or that we may have in our family traditions that we have in our cultural traditions. A lot of us can be offended by traditions when they take on definition that is anti-God, that is anti-Christ, You can take on the commercialism of what Christmas looks like in our culture and be super offended by it. Or you can take all of those traditions and apply to it all the biblical meaning that we have that's associated with gift giving. And here's the idea of gifts. Tomorrow, most of us are going to participate in some kind of exchanges of gifts. That exchange of gifts, it's a celebration and recognition of the gift that has been given to us. But when a gift is handed to you tomorrow, what do you have to do with it? You got to open it. You got to receive it. You got to take open that package. And you got to see what it is and what it's all about. For some of us, the tradition that we have in the giving and receiving of gifts already comes with the weight of definition. You've carried that boulder of burdenness in your past in some weight from the Lord where he's fulfilled your promise and you can sit in that praise and glory of God today. There's many of us, we've sat in the fulfillment of those promises where we've received the promised seed. We've received that son and we, get a, we already know what's inside the packaging. Some of you are in the position in this season of gift giving, you know what's in the package. You've heard about this Jesus, you've heard the nativity story, you've grown up in this culture, and it's taken on all these definitions and traditions that mean absolutely nothing to you. So when you do this traditional thing, or even when you engage with the Lord, it's just a Christmas morning, I opened it, I got some stuff that I wanted, I got some stuff that I didn't, and you just get that, meh the blahs, uh, you know, that post-gift wrapping moment that we're all going to press into tomorrow morning when you got to clean up the mess, right? It's over. It's done with. What do you do with the gift? There's some gifts that you were given that you don't want. There's some gifts that you're given that, you, you know, it now becomes the white elephant gift. You can't wait to give it to somebody else. May that not be your attitude with Jesus. When you open up every single day, this this gift that has been given, it comes with all from the moment of creation. History gives us all this weight of what this package is. This gift that we've been given, open it up, receive that relationship. Learn how that relationship works. Put the toy together. Go through that effort and energy of reading the instruction manual that's confusing in a different language, that irritates you, that confuses you. And over time, the construction of the toy, so to say, starts to take on shape, starts to take on meaning, importance starts to take on a little nostalgia from the past and a little bit of sentimentality in regards to the relationship. You start protecting it. You start telling others about, look at this gift that I've received. I want you to have one just like I have. That's the whole point of the narrative. In this package that we open up in Christ is a lot of weight, a lot of definition, and a tremendous amount of difficulty. That gross image of child sacrifice gets into the gross image of Christ dying on the cross for us, but it also gets into that gross image. Every single one of us needs to die every single day to yourself. If you want to have a relationship with the gift, with the gift giver, the one who has been given, the requirement the instruction manual tells us you have to die to yourself and your will day by day. And that faith that Abraham had in that death of yourself, God is not looking for your destruction, but he is testing you. He is transforming you. He is bringing about simple, obedient, loving, childlike faith that he's worthy to be obeyed regardless of what his command is. And hello, I'm on this journey too. But I've been on this journey long enough to know that what he's promised, I know for a 100% confident fact that all that he's promised for the future, it's mine and it's coming. And God help me, I'm going to wait patiently. That's the meaning of and the definition of Christmas. You have been created. You have been given life. You are loved that each one of us, to the point of has been given already the most magnificent and treasured gift that you could ever receive. Don't let that gift be in a closet. But clothe yourself in that gift every day. Amen? All right, church, I'm going to shut up now.